welcome to this week's episode of Ireland Creates. I'm your host, Ashling O'Rourke. And if you're new here, Ireland Creates is a podcast first launched in 2020, dedicated to Ireland's storytellers across all platforms, whether that be music, the visual arts, writing, the list just goes on. Each week, I bring you a chat with one of our many talented guests, and this week is no exception. But before we move on to today's episode, I wanted to let you know that you can now support Ireland Creates on Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash Ireland Creates. Patreon is the platform that helps creatives right around the world make their practice more viable. You can subscribe to Ireland Creates for as little as the price of a cup of coffee a month and in turn help me spread the word about our amazing storytellers. I mean, I drink enough coffee to fuel a spaceship and if you're interested, mine's an Americano. To be honest, I feel more than slightly odd asking you to support the podcast in this way. But the truth of the matter is that I spend a considerable amount of time putting the show together and the resources I use also need to be paid for. So if you'd like to help me make this podcast a success, please sign up at patreon.com forward slash Ireland Creates. And now on to today's guest, a musician, an educator, an entrepreneur, a creative in all sense of the word. My name is Peter Baxter. I'm a creative, I think, would be the easiest way to describe what I do. And I'm an educator. Well, Peter Baxter, welcome to Ireland Creates. And I think, yes, definitely a creative is a good way to sum up all the facets of what it is that you do. So just for listeners who might not be familiar with your work, because, you know, there's the educational side of things and then there's your own art practice. But let's go back to the early days. And being a musician, the assumption is that music was a massive part of your family life growing up. Was that, you know, the case in in your life? Yes, it was was ever present. Uh, We didn't play instruments but music was definitely there i'm i'm a child of uh, we emigrated to australia so every sunday mum had an old gramophone and uh, like uh, it wasn't a gramophone what was it called it was some it was an old radio basically that we'd inherited but we loved and on a sunday we'd put it on and listen to things like family favorites and and records and yeah always had music on I think it's something that's quite common when we look back on, you know, Irish childhoods in general. Music has always played a role in in, in the house, I think, or at least in the majority of homes in in the country. Um, What was it like, though, being moved over across the world to a very different continent? Yeah, we we went on the 10 pound scheme. And so I'm the youngest and I have two older brothers and mum and dad decided it was, uh, we're from the north and the troubles really, this is about 1972 and they decided, look, it's time to, to go. And we, my father was a builder and he got uh, uh, invited on this scheme and away we went. We went for... Well, I think my eldest brother thought it was a holiday <laughs> and he was coming back, but uh, we didn't and we stayed and and we lived there for, well, I lived there for 25 years, but it was a, it was an enormous wrench. We came from a very small, close-knit family on mum's side. I lived next door to my grandparents 
And we went from that to literally the other side of the world and knew nobody. Yeah. Literally nobody. So that was that was strange. Uh, what part of Australia did you start out in? Uh, we started out in Sydney and we went on this. Uh, we the part of the scheme was you got uh, you uh, you got. Oh, sorry, I should have turned that off. I will That's turn okay. that off. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> work never stops. Uh, we went and we were in what's called um, uh, assisted passage. So the idea was that you got. Um, flat in or uh, I think like ACDC all those guys went in the same kind of scheme and they were put in a hostel but we had a flat for six months and then whatever you could afford so mum and dad moved to the suburbs well it wasn't in the suburb it was a country town southwest Sydney southwest of Sydney a place called Campbelltown and then it's kind of subsumed now really kind of part of the outer Sydney suburbia now. So then, you know, how old were you, sorry, did you say, when, when you moved over? I was six. So, yeah. Peter, you spent, you know, a, a quite a young age, six years old, emigrating, you know, not exactly down the road to Australia, to Sydney, Australia. How did you identify growing up in your own mind? Were you Australian? Were you Northern Irish? Did you put a label on it? Uh, really interesting, no, but a lot of other people did. Hmm. And so in Australia, they didn't care if you were from Northern Ireland, Ireland, you were just Irish hmm. and you were, you were a paddy uh, and that was it. And literally it would frustrate my parents no end because uh, it was quite discriminatory too in that there's this kind of, uh, in Australia they might call it banter, but it was very derogatory towards anybody from Ireland and you just had to accept that. And I know mum really didn't, um, she was very, very, very much very proud of her heritage and she couldn't accept that uh, it was derided. And so we consider ourselves Irish and that's not a political statement. That's just that, 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 that's how we felt and we always have. So although we, my brothers and I acclimatized to the Australian way very quickly and, and even in, to you know, where accents and whatever else, but Ireland was always home. It's kind of strange. And we always came on holidays. You saved the money every three or four years and you came back to Ireland. And that was it for from six onwards. It's must have been quite difficult, really. And I've, I have lived for a short, very short period of time in comparison to you in Australia. And yes, the, the, the banter, let's, shall we say, it is different, you know. Um, it is different to what I experienced growing up. And I'm sure it was quite different, you know, um, in, in your time. Um, but that's, that, can be, that can be quite hard, especially if it's coming from other children in a school as well. Yeah, but I mean, I, I've also, uh, I'll be quite, a positive person and and I really enjoyed the cultural element of growing up I'd never seen anybody from who wasn't part of my close circle in terms of I just started school before we'd gone but I knew my cousins or my friends in the street and pretty much everyone was Irish and white basically mm -hmm. so going to Australia was a real melting pot and it was phenomenal like I had friends who were Maltese Italian Croatian you name it, indigenous, everything, like uh, you, wherever, all over the world. So that was, I, I've always been really interested in that uh, element of it. So, yeah, there's, 
there's, there's, it, it, it's strange, and I was fortunate in that I spoke English. It must have been a lot harder for kids that were coming from non-speaking backgrounds because we spoke English always, and they didn't always understand us. Yeah. But, <laughs> uh, we spoke it, yeah. Yeah, I remember um, when I went to study in Australia, I, um, I had assumed that because I spoke English, there wouldn't be a language barrier. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, I'm from Offaly. I have an, a Midlands accent. Um, so there was, yeah, I had to learn to slow my speech down so that I could be understood. But I remember finding it really infuriating at the time going, but we're speaking the same language. Oh, it's mad, yeah. Um, um, but obviously it's, you know, it's not. It's not the same language um, in many ways. So you said, OK, you'd as a family, you loved listening to music. Mm-hmm. When did the opportunity come your way to start practicing music? Well, my father uh, had played music as a child and he played accordion and he'd always sung. Dad sang in choirs and so he loved music and we loved ballads. So they were always played in the car or on the radio or when they had a get-together, there'd always be a sing-song. Like literally uh, we, we fell in with people from uh, nearby, uh, back home, like where we're from, and Randama, and then through a wider circle. So there was always sing-songs and get-togethers. And so I always gravitated towards those and learned a party piece. I learned a song and got involved. It was really nice. It was generally always like a barbecue and then a sing-song. And uh, so I loved that. And the opportunity came there to sing. And to play, uh, not to play. I wasn't playing yet, but my father had a had an accident uh, when I think he was late fifties, early sixties, on a building site, and lost power. Not the power, but he lost. He had very restricted mobility in one arm, so he couldn't work again. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And was yeah. that still in Australia? Yeah, yeah, still in Australia. So he was pretty down. And mum and I had gone into Sydney. There was a great old music shop called Folkways, which was. Uh, a, well, we used to go anyway and buy old kind of rare albums and things, but they had an accordion in the window one day, and I said to Mum, was that what Dad played? And she said, I think so. So we bought it and brought it home, and um, Dad could move his arm. He just couldn't lift it up, but he could move it sideways. And 50 years after he last played one, it was diddly you know, and he's banging away. We thought this is brilliant. And then uh, he suggested I learn guitar because he said that would be a great way to keep in tune, and I did. And then we played at a party and we played at a St. Patrick's Day, golf day or something one time, and a publican source and said, hey, lads, do you want a gig? And we said, sure. And it just went. We, I was playing with Dad four or five nights a week then and learning and uh, the old songs that we knew but just learning how to play them because we knew, we knew a lot of the ballads, you know. It sounds idyllic, really. <laughs> well, it was great crack. Yeah. yeah, really good fun. And the challenge then of learning a new instrument, you know, were you, and, and when it wasn't, not necessarily, I'm not going to say, you know, that he put it on you, but like, you know, when you were told it was the guitar or suggested the guitar, did you just take to it immediately? Yeah, I think I'd had a hankering to do it and dad offered to buy one. So that was, okay. <laughs> that, yeah. that sweetened the deal, but uh, my interest wasn't just in folk music. Like I, I'm an avid music collector since I was very young. So I thought this is a good opportunity. I'd, I'd always wanted to play. I was writing lyrics and writing songs and poems and different things since I can remember. So it kind of served a few purposes and, and it was a good opportunity 
And so I did. Yeah. Couldn't look back. And when you say you were writing songs and poems, was that from, you know, childhood? Uh, pretty much, as long as I can remember, okay. really. Yeah. Where do you think that urge comes from? Don't know. I just, I was a reader and I think I, I had my inspirational teachers at school, usually English teachers, that I, I resonated with. And I just loved, mum had us reading before we went to school. So I just always loved stories and books and, you know, uh, and I, I, I just always felt the urge to, I wouldn't have shared it necessarily with anyone, but I, I loved, it was a great release to write things in a journal or a book. I'm fascinated and Ireland Creates is all about storytelling in all its genres, um, regardless of the medium. And it's interesting to me to have the experience of growing up in two different cultures, you know, because, you know, storytelling, I think we like to think of ourselves in Ireland as storytelling being part of our DNA. It's something that we're really good at and we identify as storytellers as, as a nation. But really, you know, every culture has storytellers in it. So, you know, to have that, I suppose, diversity and the ability to see music and music of different genres and experience it in a different way in another country must have been quite interesting for you. It was. And as I say, culturally, I've always been interested in other musics, uh, world music before it was maybe world music. As I say, that shop in Sydney, it was in Paddington. I always found really interesting because you'd go in and they'd be playing uh, Zydeco or whatever it might be, Italian opera. It could be anything. Mm -hmm. And I always thought that was interesting. Although I didn't understand it, but probably the the most cathartic thing for me was uh, growing up, as I say, in suburban. Well, it wasn't suburban; it was a country town. But yeah, like you know, whatever a, a part of Sydney, we'd commute in to go to 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 work and what have you, and and socially. And then I started to just um, start playing and writing songs, and I got an opportunity to do a tour of the outback with an Aboriginal writer called Archie Roach. And that just blew my mind, absolutely. And you're saying there about storytelling. So I didn't really have a great deal of exposure to the Indigenous culture of Australia. It's quite divided in that way, isn't it? Yeah, very much so. And and this was an opportunity to play in Alice Springs and Darwin and just to hang around and, and watch and listen and learn. And it was a massive uh, learning experience for me and led to a lifetime of interest where, you know, you, you, you then check out films or books or you talk to other people, you find out other songwriters and musicians and so on and so forth. But uh, that was particularly interesting. So I came back from there and wanted to do something and a project based on it, which ended up becoming a songwriting project, a workshop, which ended up becoming what I do for a living. Um, but I also set about uh, setting up a, a, a record label to set up, to fund a record that would go as part of this workshop. And that was to invite Archie Roach, this guy I travel with, and some other songwriters, Indigenous, non-Indigenous, uh, to give us songs that told stories. And we were looking like a Shanaki kind of thing, you know, mm-hmm. tell, us, tell us stories of your experience. And so I put this whole project together and it was called Yellow Mundi, which in, in the, one of the indigenous dialects means old man storyteller. Uh, and that was basically my 
opening to all of this. Wow, it sounds mm. fascinating. I have to be honest. It's, uh, and I suppose you know, thinking back to my short experience of what the outback even looks like, you know, it's the kind of place that, well, if it doesn't encourage you to create something. Um, you'd want to be pretty cold. You know, it is. A, it's such an unusual landscape. The people are so different to, um, you know, what you might expect. It's it's one of those places, at least from my own perspective, you know, my own biases and all of that. It just, it was, it's an awe-inspiring place to, to think that um, the culture is still thriving, you know, in um, with this, considering the modernism that's everywhere else. Um, so this whole idea of making music and it becoming potentially a career for you was that something you planned you know um was it something you always wanted to do or did it just happen kind of naturally i suppose happenstance really that's it's funny Uh, i had no career i was working and just plodding along in a completely unrelated industry but not necessarily enjoying it just one opportunity led to another and as I say touring um, that short tour in the Outback just uh, I I can't describe the effect that something like that can have on somebody uh, because you realize the possibilities and you see that life is uh, is, it's not necessarily it doesn't have to be as prescribed as you might think it has to be in fairness the mum and dad they never really pushed me either they let me experience my own uh well to follow my own experiences you know what i mean mm-hmm. they, they were great but yeah sometimes it's just uh, all kinds of uh experiences and i was never particularly uh, and i'm not uh, i'm not um, ambitious in that respect i just i love the element of seeing what happens but doing the best that I can when I'm in the opportunity, when I'm presented with the opportunity. But, uh, yeah, it was huge. Um, lots of different circumstances throughout, but I never saw it as a, this is a career plan. No one from where I grew up ever wrote songs and played music, you know, like they would have played in the local pub and mm-hmm. done covers. And, but no one ever, I'd, I'd, I'd no friends that ever had that uh, kind of, uh, what would you say, that, that direction. No. And, you know, it's not exactly the easiest gig to, to make a living out of, you know, no. so it's, no. it's it's it can be attractive for some reasons. But, um, you know, I know it's not it, oftentimes, I suppose, the stereotypical story is, well, the parents wanted me to get a real job. Um, mm. So you said this whole path you followed, it, you know, was inspired by this tour in the Outback and a workshop you created off the back of that what was the workshop? It was a songwriting workshop, songwriting storytelling. Uh, although at that stage, maybe I had an album, maybe I had two. I'm not sure, uh, but it was pretty early on. From I, I, I got the opportunity to record an album pretty quickly after I started playing guitar and and, and writing songs. So it was pretty early in the process, but I didn't want to ever hold myself up as a doyen, a great songwriter. That's not what it was about. It was about encouraging others. And that's kind of been the mantra forevermore. It's it's about encouraging people to write and express and tell stories rather than this is the formula you must use to have a hit song or this is what makes a – because it's also subjective, you know. Mm -hmm. 
but that was it. I, I loved the, the element of that it was combining something with uh, with social import, uh, cultural import, and uh, an opportunity for people to tell their stories. I just loved that idea. Like in the ballad, you know, really, or, or a good punk song or, or whatever it is. It's the heart of it's a good story. And it's an amazing way to document an oral history of a place or a person or, you know, it's um, it's there's, there's a heart and soul to it that you might mm. not get, not that's missing from the written word, but you might not feel from the miss, missing word. Um, so then, you know, you had what sounds like a pretty thriving thing going on in Australia. When did you decide to return to Ireland? It was about 1998, and on my first album, I'd almost, almost got a deal with a record label called Cooking Vinyl. They were rumming and eyeing about it for six months, and uh, that was all luck too. But my first record, a couple of shops had, uh, a couple of people had sent it into, uh, in Australia, there's a, uh, the ABC is like the RTE mm-hmm. uh, equivalent, and a couple of people had sent uh albums in said this guy's you know if you haven't heard him check it out and that was lovely and they then sent it into the head office who were independently that done this who were setting up a record label so a few things kind of just happened that way and then i thought you know what the music i like maybe i'll send it this is back pre-email even god love it those <laughs> days so i was writing letters and oh I wow sent, yeah yeah sent sent the record over and the guy who was Martin Goldschmidt was his name. He was, he was, oh, I don't want to say no, I don't know. And I was thinking, this is great. In the end, that didn't happen. But I got a promise on my second album, if I recorded, that I could get a release in Ireland through a record label called Round Tower. Mm. And Round Tower had uh, Mick Hanley's Past Point of Rescue. I think that was probably the big, the big success. But they had lots of good songwriters and folk artists and uh, acoustic rootsy kind of stuff, which would have been probably my bag where I would have fallen in. And they said, if you come over, we'll release it. So I said, I'll come over for a while. And a friend of mine at the time, uh, we started going out then. I'd met her in Australia. We started going out then, Jane, and we got married and bingo here i am <laughs> <laughs> yeah so just just a quick visit then for this record i knew it'd be six months because just the fact that being in europe was i said this is a great opportunity to kind of travel and and i got some tours and gigs in germany and holland and different places so i was always keen to go and see different cultures and experience because i didn't have the chance to do that kind of thing, living in Australia, uh, to experience Europe. And I was always mm-hmm. a bit of a Europhile. I always loved, loved it. Grass is always greener and all of that, you know. All that, yeah, yeah. Well, grass is always colder. And, yeah. <laughs> so then when did the collaboration with Donald Lunny come along? Uh, yeah, well, again, I used the same approach I'd used for my first album. I wrote to the people I really liked. And in Australia, I really liked a band called Weddings Parties Anything, which is an odd name. Uh, but the lead singer is a great songwriter, and I liked the whole band. And he, I'd writ- written to him and asked, could I, would he produce my album? And he said, uh, no, I can't. I'm going to Canada. But a guitarist just left, a guy called Dave Steele. You should approach him. And I knew his stuff. He'd brought out a solo album, which I loved. And Dave agreed to, and he produced two albums. So I thought I'll try the same approach with Donal. And 
I'd sent him uh, some demos. I'd sent him uh, my first couple of albums and said, look, I want to record. Would you be interested? And he came back and said, yeah, let's do it. And so I worked away, tipped away. It took a while because uh, Donald was living in Japan at the time. So I had to kind of bookend his tours with a day here, a day there, and, uh, yeah, tip away at, at getting it done. It took about three years in the end. And what's the process like then, you know, for people who are not, for you know, if, if producing music is not their particular art form, how does it work then on a practical basis? If you approach somebody who's who you're a fan of, essentially, and mm-hmm. to get to work with them on your project, what is the collaboration process like then? How does it work? It varies with different producers. Uh, ideally, you want to have someone whose opinion uh, or who who you like. I'd love Donald's production, particularly on uh, Moving Hearts and the, some of the Christy Moore stuff. I love what he was able to do uh, sonically. I, I really liked it. And so I had a fair idea of what he could do and what I wanted. And so it, you have to have someone who you respect and and whose opinion, if it goes against yours, you're willing to listen to. And sometimes with artists, that's not easy. But then why have a producer if you're not a collaborator whose opinion you're, you're, you're essentially uh, um, engaging, uh, mm-hmm. uh, buying, uh, whatever, you know, like that's what you're asking them to do. So I think you've got to go in with that approach. Otherwise, it's not going to work. But to me, it was my college uh, my education in music was working with these guys and Dave was the same and Australia's amazing. So that's how I learned to record. And uh, so, yeah, that's the process depends on the individuals, but uh, with a good producer, if you're a songwriter, you want someone who's going to say, look, that second line's a bit lazy. Uh, what are you trying to say there? You want someone who's going to give you complete feedback and um, input and, and opinion, you know? That might not be easy, though, you know, when you're after Mm. spending all this time creating the songs and labouring over writing them. And then if someone comes in and effectively wants to tear apart your baby, um, I'm Mm. sure it can be very challenging. Yeah, I think so. But then maybe you set the ground rules. I I don't know. You spend a bit of time getting to know each other. And uh, I think uh, in Donald's case, it was quite interesting because it's not always uh, the negative connotation where they're taking things away. In fact, I had one particular song that he argued with me that I should write two more verses to tell the story better. And this thing's like seven and a half minutes long, which I never thought I would have written a song. But it's interesting. Sometimes, you know, like a, it, that's what it's about. And other times somebody might say, or it could just be a musician, uh, who you're playing with says, look, you know, I think this is, this could resolve better or this is a bit boring. And I don't mean just, I don't mean just, I don't mean that, but I mean, it's, it's, if you're collaborating, it's whoever you're collaborating with, Mm -hmm. because if you're a guitarist, you see music very differently than say a bass player does or a drummer. And, and one of the great insights that I've gained is that, um, I want to be able to, um, see the music from different angles and so many people have so many good insights that aren't mine (laughs) and they're often far better than mine you know that's the way I look at it yeah but it does take someone who's very confident in their own I suppose confident in themselves but confident in their own abilities to be able Mm. to take on criticism about 
your own work as well. You know, constructive criticism, obviously, um, but it's not it's not a gift that everybody has. Um, I guess is what I'm trying to say. But um, so you you came back to Ireland for that wee trip, you know, six months. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, then you 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 found uh, you found the love of your life, and Ireland became home again. Mm-hmm. And then you set up this this school, this education um, facility that you that was going to become the, the full not nec- the full time gig, the one that paid the bills for you. Take us through what it is that you do. Tell our listeners a little bit about it. Uh, well, uh, essentially, what it is, it's it's creative education and uh, non formal education. It's creative digital media, arts and music. That's essentially what it is. So we would work as a team and we're a company. We have five employees and we travel all over Ireland or we're based in different parts. And the the other uh, folks that work with me have worked with me, most of them for over seven or eight years. We're all in this together. It's a really lovely cooperative. And our passion is is our own creative practice and and education. So sharing that with young people or old people doesn't matter. We've done all kinds of projects. But that that magic, that buzz when you're able to work with someone who says, oh, look, I want to do, make a film or make a podcast or write a song or whatever it might be, and you work with them and, and you're able to uh, find that little kernel within them and and bring it out and they realize they can do this uh, that's priceless that's what we do that's 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 the magic and i'm not quite sure how it works but it does and of course we should mention uh createschool.ie is the, the company name um, and listeners may have heard me mention it before because you're the person behind our theme tune yeah that was that was lovely it was great fun and um, that's that's an example of digital uh music and the more i learn and uh, we're always learning and practicing, but uh, uh, developing our own practice. And in the last ten years, there's been a massive uh, change with electronic music, which I would not have been anywhere interested in before. And now I just I'm I'm besotted by it. I love it. Um, so this kind of element and using apps and and uh, software. So that's 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 what when when you gave me the call and said, could you do something to to create something with uh, software electronically? I love it. It's really good fun. And then you know, obviously, you said at the begin- beginning that storytelling is is the foundation of everything that you do. Mm-hmm. How do you learn then to transfer the skills? You know, from it's one thing telling your own story or writing a song about a story that you're familiar with to actually learning then how to teach other people to utilize storytelling, whether it's on a podcast or with a song. Um, where did, um, I suppose, where does your inspiration come on that front? From the people themselves. I think, I think there's a couple of elements that it's, it's interesting. You and I both did a course recently mm-hmm. in Trinity, and I thought that was a really good example of, of uh, reflective practice. I think for any of us to stop, to reset, to relearn, and there was a lovely component in there with Sally um, 
where we talked about storytelling and that really resonated with me. And I think sometimes that's what happens. We know it and sometimes it's good to get the affirmation from someone else telling you a new way or a new technique or a new idea. We're able to delve into uh, or, or take a slightly different tweaked approach. And so I think to get the story, the story we it's easier to tell other people's story than tell your own, I mm. find as I'm kind of fumbling through today thinking, well, uh, yeah, but it is true. I fumble through life. Like uh, I think it's easier always to hear the, the story and other people. And so hopefully to answer your question, what I'd say is to, um, to I, I don't really find it that difficult to, to hear other people's story and, and to draw that out of them. I don't know what that is. I think we all probably would have it. The skills that you learn from years of practice are um, intangible and hard to describe, but they're there. It's probably just it's probably just experience, maybe. What's it like working with children? I teach adults at Ballyferman College and, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can have, you know, um, adults to adult conversations with my students. We have good crack in class. Um there's that old saying, you know, never work with kids and animals. Um, what's it like teaching storytelling through all these different uh, ways to kids? Uh, unbelievably enjoyable. I think I, I love working with young people and uh, I, it's, it's interesting. And to, to try and describe it without using generalisms is really difficult. But mm-hmm. the beauty of it is with with particularly, say, primary school children, what's great is that they are—they still have a great deal of creativity. It hasn't necessarily been tempered or tapered by whatever society or educational uh, confines that happen when you get a bit older. But it's still there, and I love that. I love the the the, the innocence and the magic of storytelling with kids who can yeah. come up with amazing stories. And some of them are just brilliant all-round people uh, already formed uh, who you love hanging out with. They're really interesting people who've got stories to tell and are interested in yours. We work an awful lot with teenagers, and I, I don't know, I just uh, I, I maybe haven't grown up. I just really I haven't grown up properly. I just love working with teenagers. I, I really do. Uh, I we can relate. You're right, though. Like that thing of... Do you know the way, like, and I would say it a lot, and it's been a kind of one of my sayings for years, you know, you feel the fear and you do it anyway. But there's that age with younger children when they don't even know what the fear is. So they just, they tell their story. They say what it is they want. Like, I I know one of my friends, um, she has three sons now, but when her eldest was, I don't know, was he two or three, they came back from a, a holiday in Sligo. And I remember saying to him, Luke, you know, what was it like? Did you have fun? And like he just turned around to me and he said, well, every day, Ashling, we said hello to Mr. Ben Bulban. <laughs> and some days Mr. Ben was happy, as in it was sunny. And some days Mr. Ben, ben Bulban was sad. And it really stopped me in my tracks. I was there going, my God, this is a little mini philosopher at the age of, what, two and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, because there was no fear. There was no, like, he didn't understand what it was like to be embarrassed or, you know, nothing, none of the things that the world brings all these confines yeah. and constraints on us. I just think kids have, um, it's, it, they really know how to put us in our place and to stop us in our tracks. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And I think the magic of the, uh, you know, the, the million dollar 
uh, question is, well, it's not even a question, but I'm saying maybe the the thing that I think we lose. I think Kevin Robinson. I know he had spoken about it too, quite. Um, Quite, quite brilliantly, actually. But he was talking about how when you go into secondary school, sometimes, for whatever reason, you know, that sometimes that that we lose that, or we get to a certain age, whatever yeah. it is. And I think I love that in primary school kids. Uh, we do podcasts, and I, it's really funny. Hey, you can get some absolutely brilliant stories for that reason. And I'm always afraid to. In one sense, you'd love to go back 10 years later, you know, or seven years on or whatever it might be. Uh, I wonder how differently you know, Luke would feel about Mr. Ben Bolman now, but but it's a beautiful story, you know. It, it's there, isn't it? I can relate to that. I'm sure we all can. You can listen to it and go, yeah, okay. Sure, why not? Why can't he be happy or sad? Yeah, exactly. exactly. That mirrors our own emotions or we mirror those, so... I just, I just love the, um, the yeah. emotional intelligence of it all, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Peter, you're at the moment this, this, like you know, the, it's it's your full time gig. Are you still writing music for yourself? Finding it hard at the moment, just with like everybody, uh, COVID kind of world and working from home. It's very hard to switch off, and my work is my. Um, uh, like say with the brief with yourself we're, we're we're coming up with with creative projects creative projects form a, a large part of of our work our own practice so then to go and say well i'm going to go and write some songs now i've got an hour off that tends to be the last thing i want to do yeah and so <laughs> i might go for a walk or whatever it might do but i find um i'm forever doing something and going for a walk i i I find it's great inspiration just to write down ideas. So I have lots of bits and I've got a couple of songs that I just started after, uh, what is that now? I think I've three or four on the go at the moment. And so I think the last album was 2010 and I'd love to, I, I, I'm kind of welling up to doing another one. Whether albums are a good idea, I don't know. Maybe they're not these days, but just I want to do one. So we'll see maybe in, if I have a deadline, if I, I think like a lot of creatives, you need the yeah. deadline to go. Okay, so I'm I'm there or thereabouts, but I'm always doing. Even if I don't know, I try and do something creative at least for myself as often as I possibly can. Can whatever that might be. I hear what you're saying, though. Like it's um, when creativity it forms part of your day to day gig. It is difficult to just switch off the the gig that plays pays the bills, mm-hmm. and it's it's not like you, you can't just flick a switch and now okay I'm in songwriting mode. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of creators like when I wrote the first two albums, definitely the first one, I was doing another job, and the one thing I loved doing of an evening was coming home, pulling out the guitar, and writing songs. Uh, loved it. I mean, I still love it, mm-hmm. but I just find it's less and less. Uh, possible to do at the end of a working day because in my working day <laughs> I've been probably doing the same thing so uh it's different you know and and there's a lot of energy used up in creative education you've got you you end uh, like any education i think if you yeah. teach you give a lot of yourself so uh you need to recharge um i don't know i'm making a lot of excuses here but i think uh yeah i i'm confident that uh i'd uh, I'm going to be writing more and more. I'm looking forward to Christmas. We all kind of do that and think, ah, oh, midterm. I'll, well, we don't have midterms, but Christmas I'll, um, yeah, I'll, I'll knock out a few songs. But 
bits on the go, you know? Yeah, and I suppose as well, you know, we have to have something to write about and, and life this year has been very different. You know, it's um, it's hard to know really what to make of it. And sometimes when we want to create to, to go about uh, creating anything, any work of art or telling any story, well, at least I find and I can only speak about myself, but you need time to process what's happened before you can turn that out into a, a piece of art. Yeah. And I think a COVID album, God, I think we're all probably going to be well and truly over this when it happens. So you need a subject matter that uh, is far removed, which maybe it's a perfect time to think of other things, you know, uh, to employ some wishful thinking and lots of metaphor. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I think I, I, I respect anybody that is able to do it. It's challenging. I think just challenging in modern life full stop we're all at the beck and call of our devices and communications and everything it's it's pretty hard for anyone to switch off and then to get into the mindset where you're going to create uh that that's a challenge so maybe that's something i personally need to bring into my own practice is maybe some meditation or something uh i don't know maybe there's 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 a good course to go on for that i'd, I'd welcome hearing about that um, I might be able to give you some recommendations on that. I've done a couple of my meditation courses that I have found very helpful, but that's another yeah. day's conversation. Yeah, um, well. The one thing, though, is like I heard, um, I don't know if you're familiar with her or not, Stephanie Preisner. She's um, a writer and uh, a podcaster as well, but she she was on um, radio a couple of weeks back and I just, it was just the way, it was a turn, the turn of phrase and, and thought, right, you're really summing up this year. And she was like, I'm fed up of hearing people saying, well, you know, work from home, ha, 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 you know, the joy and she's like we're not working from home we're living at work yeah um, <laughs> fair point and it did at the time stop me in my tracks and went oh god that's a bit grim isn't it but it's kind of true um, yeah. and I think this year of all years you know okay maybe hopefully society as a whole um, has maybe taken on a bit more appreciation of creatives and the work that artists of all forms do but there has been that feeling of pressure of okay lads right now over to you off you go we need some products here you know we need a bit of entertainment how do you feel about that um that element of pressure that's been put on the creative sector this year from all sides you know government friends colleagues family you know now you have the time to go create stuff um do you have any thoughts on that i think it's kind of a it's a it's a web because that's the other thing with engagement with social media and look, I'm on social media, but I think sometimes we feel that uh, t t we feel the need to be uh, producing and creating and sharing to build our, our following or whatever it might be or to engage with our audience, all this kind of stuff. I think that's just a modern pressure. And I, I think maybe, maybe one of the things of this COVID um, experience for all of us is that we're taking stock and one of the great things I'm finding is yeah working from home that is true it is struggling but I also have a lot more time to hang out with the kids or hang out with the dog or friends or whatever it is well not friends necessarily but you know yeah. but you know what I mean like I can go for a walk I'm lucky where I live there's some nice walks all that kind of stuff there's lots of you, you do there, there are times to do that kind of thing and I I'm not I don't have uh, thousands of fans begging me to come and make another record or anything like that. So I don't have that pressure. It must be hard on artists that are. Yeah. That is the main thing. What I do feel as a as an educational 
creative you know, or a creative in the educational space. I think it's really interesting to go back on a point you made there. And I've been in the space for this is 20 years now. It's really interesting to see there's a lot of positive uh, acceptance of what say non-formal education is and what non-formal educators do and particularly in the creative space in the last few years and maybe things like creative island have been good in the way that they're probably uh, uh giving it some uh, authentication or, or or credit or something that that's happening i think there's a lot of a lot of really interesting conversations where schools are, are knowing now they can look outside of their their uh, curriculum confines and looking to get other people to come in and help um, to work with the students and help with their own CPD. Or th- there's a lot of things like that are quite good. Mm-hmm. And so for for musicians too, I think it's interesting. And in my experience, yeah, I'm, I'm a songwriter. That's what I consider I do. I don't write many songs necessarily. I never did. But I find it's interesting that if I'm uh, educating now, that I, I see some people don't just uh, there's a there's a clear delineation between being an educator and being uh, creative and I think uh, seeing the merit of educating uh, being an educator as a defined career as well for people that's interesting you know I see that these are a few of the changes in the last twenty years people yeah. don't say I'll teach a bit for the crack it's like well I actually want to be an educator I want to do this for a living. I, I love it, and and do you know, I see, uh, do you know what I mean? I think some I do, other yeah. people. So I think that's interesting. It's not just a part-time gig, and it's being acknowledged as such. Now, it's not for everybody, and it's certainly not for all creatives. But for me, it's a lovely way to marriage the the two, and to make a living. And each of each element of that is like that yin and yang. It, they balance. Mm-hmm. I, I'd love a bit more balance, but you're never going to be happy. That's my job is to make it balance. But to me, that's where it is. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It is, like we're all we're always going to be striving for something else. Um, mm. But, you know, maybe one of the lessons we can take from this year is is, is that appreciation and the appreciation of um, what what educators do, but what creatives do as well. And maybe an appreciation of, do you know what, things aren't, things could be much worse. Um, depends on your circumstances, you know, and I think in my circumstances, I'm, I'm, I'm safe and I'm, and my, you know those yeah. around me are safe and well so I don't mean to to ride anybody or do that I know not everyone's going to be in that position so I'm grateful for it but yeah I, it's there's a lot of doom and gloom out there so uh, I try and I uh, think we all do just for our own positive mental well-being is just to turn off the radio sometimes now post American election and all the rest of it it's nice just to uh, I listen to podcasts that's and 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 I'm finding if I get a good podcast, I'm, I've discovered a couple of really good ones lately that um, excite me and make me want to go and discover more music or, or learn more about a particular field. You know, they, mm-hmm. they're brilliant. They really are. Yeah, and I think now there is so much more space um, to to spend a bit of time like that, and to and to, to mm. inv- spend time on something that really does inspire us, and then let it feed back into whatever it is that we do on a day to day basis. So, Peter, I'm going to ask you um, mm-hmm. the question I ask everybody: mm-hmm. What does storytelling mean to you? Storytelling to me is keeping one's story alive. And that could be your family. I um, I lost my mum earlier this year, and I've I I think it's interesting going through 
what keeps a story. Uh, uh, we're from a, an oral culture predominantly in Ireland and, and likewise in Indigenous cultures around the world, like in Australia. So that's what keeps us alive is our story. I think as long as someone's telling your story, you're still there. And to me, that's what storytelling is, you know, talking about that great uncle or your granny or your cousin or somebody or, or my friend or somebody I knew. Uh, yeah, storytelling is is what keeps them alive, you know. Yeah, for me, it's, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. For me, it's that connective tissue. Um, mm. But listen, Peter Baxter, I could talk to you all day. Thank you very much for joining us on uh, Ireland Creates. I, I really appreciate it. And for your work on our theme song as well. You can check out Peter Baxter on peterbaxter.ie and on createschool.ie as well. And thank you for doing what you do. Keep it going, Ashley. Lovely to meet you and keep in touch. Thanks again to Peter Baxter and his colleagues in createschool.ie for our theme tune and to Peter for taking time out to have a chat with me for this week's episode. I hope you enjoyed episode number 11 in our podcast venture and I hope you will consider signing up to Back Ireland Creates on patreon.com forward slash Ireland Creates so that I can keep this show on the virtual road. Have a great week, stay safe and I'll be back next week with another fabulous guest. Thank you.